Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Hey there, Hilary here. You're listening to episode 28 on Fertile Minds Radio. Welcome back. Today's episode is full of hope and maybe even some perspective changers for some of you, especially when it comes to what you can handle at once. Our guest today is Alice Creasy. She is an author, a fertility preservation spokeswoman, and a social entrepreneur. She is the founder of Fertile Action, a nonprofit for fertile women touched by cancer. She is also the founder of My Vision, Inc., a consumer products company that is also home to My Vision Phototherapy Program for breast cancer patients to help women transition through the many challenging phases of breast cancer treatment. Within weeks of her own breast cancer diagnosis, Alice harvested her eggs to protect her opportunity to become a mom after surviving cancer, had a nude photography session, launched Fertile Action, and published her first book, Too Young for This. Her processing choices of a cancer diagnosis at 31 years old are chronicled in her book and hailed by others as a must-read for loved ones of those touched by cancer. She is also a regular columnist on the Huffington Post and travels the country as a fertility preservation spokeswoman for the California Cryobank, educating others on fertility preservation. In addition to her inspiring story, which is enough to make anyone rethink their complaints when it comes to fertility challenges, She has been a game changer in legislation and technology. Seriously, you guys, we owe her so much, especially if you know someone that has been diagnosed with cancer at a young age and wants to preserve their fertility. She has recently launched an app called MedAnswers that seeks to connect patients experiencing fertility challenges, oncology issues, or even genetic questions with industry-vetted experts like urologists, oncologists, reproductive endocrinologists, embryologists, and geneticists. And she assured me that in the future, there might even be expert advice from alternative practitioners like vetted acupuncturists like myself. This app is super cool. You can type in your question or case history and literally have an answer from an expert, probably quicker in the time that you can schedule an appointment to see them. The best part is, is that this is expert information. This is not info from a well-meaning patient on a forum that had a case sort of kind of like yours. This is your question being answered by an expert. You can even search by topic and see answers that have been given to other patients. And because there is no identifying information, you don't have to worry about your private health information being strewed about the internet or worse, being mined in some way like it currently is on our social media platforms. So download this app today on iOS or Android, and let's dive into the show. Our guest today is Alice Creasy, Fertility Hope in the Face of Cancer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You are certainly a woman and mother on a mission, and your story is so incredible of how you turned what could have been a tragic diagnosis into a few projects that are actually helping people all over the planet. So I just want to let you tell our listeners about your story first. Oh, thank you so much. It's very, very kind of you to say. It's been 10 years now since I was diagnosed with cancer. It's hard to believe it's been that many years. And within a few weeks of the diagnosis, I learned the scariest potential side effect of breast cancer and its treatment. 
And that was the chance that I would be left infertile. I was one of those people who knew from the time that I was a very young girl that I would be a mom one day. It was the most important thing to me. Although at the time I was much busier with building my career than I was in trying to find a mate. When I embarked on the fertility preservation journey, at the time, egg freezing was still considered experimental. I learned if I used the old technology just to freeze eggs, I only had a 2 to 3% chance it would work. I've never been much of a gambler. I don't enjoy going to Vegas, but I did not like those odds. So I asked my, my IVF doctor, what else can I do? That seems not fair to, only, to go into this with only a 2 to 3% chance. I need more assurance than that. And she said that embryo freezing was a much better technology, and she recommended that I select a sperm source. Well, I was in a relationship at the time, so I thought, well, I don't have to select one. I already have a sperm source. But after I got off the phone with her and walked into uh, the, the bedroom that my boyfriend was using in my house for his home office, and I said, we are, we're going to make embryos, he told me we didn't have a future together. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Not the best timing. However, no. <laughs> something that of course I'm grateful for his bravery and his clarity. He was right. It was just terrible timing. Although on the other hand, it was the best timing because the very next morning when I walked into the fertility clinic's office and was handed a sperm donor catalog, that really began the best, most incredible journey of my life. And that was my path to single motherhood. Wow. So you are 31 years old when this happens. Yes. You're facing a, a diagnosis of breast cancer that's going to require a double mastectomy, right? Mm-hmm. And you're having to pick a sperm donor at the same time <laughs> and end a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Uh, my friend Jen was with me and, you know, I was so overwhelmed that she said, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> and I handed her the catalog and I was like, great, pick him. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't look even at the catalog for a couple of days because I was really overwhelmed, but I only had five days. So everything was, was moving so quickly. I was already on day three of my period when I first went into the fertility clinic. And back then day three was the last possible date. You could start your hormone injections. Nowadays, you can stop your cycle wherever it is and start the fertility preservation medications. We, we have things called rapid starts, uh, fast starts, and that, that didn't exist back then. So it was start that day or do not proceed, which gave me a five-day business window of when to select the sperm, when I was going to be able to, of course, pick up the sperm tank from the, the local sperm bank and get it to my infertility clinic in time for my egg retrieval. Wow. So I went, yeah, I went into a full analytical mode of how to whittle down 300 donor catalog into one selection. <laughs> wow. So 300 is actually, I feel like now it's, it's almost too overwhelming because there's so many overwhelming. <laughs> available. Yeah, there's so many. And, and I'm told that that's better. I don't know. I, I don't like going into Target because there's too many options on a shelf. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's been a really bad day. I just kind of wander. Yes. It's like no decisions are made. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. really, but why do we need 85 different options for one shampoo bottle? You know, I, that overwhelms me in life anyway. So yes, I had to look at that catalog and find really obvious ways to strike 50 to hundred at a time. The very first thing that I did to narrow down my selection 
was cross off anyone who didn't have every available piece of information. So this is something that at least in, in this particular cryobank back then, you know, they show you, does somebody have a long health history, a short one? Do they have an audio interview, a handwriting sample, staff impressions, and all these various things? And I thought, gosh, you know, one day I'm going to have a child from, you know, this particular donor. I think that that child deserves to have every single piece of available information. And I didn't know why some of the donors listed didn't have those pieces. I didn't know if it was something I could get later. I didn't really have a whole lot of time to investigate that. I just crossed them off the list right away. My attitude was, if potentially it's just because they're lazy or they don't want to be that forthcoming with this potential data, then they weren't going to be the right fit for me because that kind of gave me pause. You're willing to give a genetic sample, but you're not willing to you know, do a hand, handwritten essay or you know, do an audio interview. That probably whittled down, I'd say even 100 potential you know, candidates that were just crossed off the list right away. Wow. The next thing I did was just cross off kind of whole ethnic populations that certainly felt bizarre for me to just say, sorry, not that ethnic, you know, population, because I'm not like that in life. But the reality is, is that if I'd never dated or felt myself attracted to someone of a particular ethnicity, I, now is not the time to be judging myself and making myself wrong and trying to keep myself open to that potential fit. I, I went down the path of the kind of person that I repeatedly sort of dated in life. And I think that that's a difficult conversation to have these days in kind of the face of so much uh, racism in our country. It's hard for me to even recommend that to, to people in my same situation but you have to be really true with yourself. And if, you know, if you find that you've never, you know, dated someone of this particular um, ethnic background, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and you're, you know, if, if you're trying to select DNA that may one day kind of match up with a potential spouse, then you have to stay really true to who you are and who you see yourself with. And I've always been drawn to Mediterranean men, um, olive complexions, dark hair, green eyes, brown eyes. That's, that's just what I find myself most drawn to. It's no offense to the beautiful, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed men out there or redheads. You know, I, I just haven't, uh, I just haven't found myself drawn in that direction. And so when I narrowed down again, I only had probably 30 donors just from those two cuts that I made. And of those 30, then I got to get really specific. I looked at, you know, long versions of health histories and ruled out anyone else who had cancer in their history, considering what I was facing. And then from there, probably ended up with about 12. And from the 12, I had to get really quiet with myself, you know, because everybody looks really great on paper. And in the end, you know what, uh, I went with my gut, I went with uh, someone whom I thought was very complimentary to me on paper, had a different type of intelligence on paper. <laughs> uh, you know, I enjoyed his audio interview. Uh, I thought that he was doing the, the sperm donation process for the right reasons. I didn't mind uh, that it was helping put him through medical school. I think that, that it, they should be financially compensated. But he also spoke to the altruism. And I felt that that was really important to me. I wanted to be able to tell my son a story about both sides of his origins. And that the person I ended up picking is someone who 
basically brought himself from a poverty situation in Mexico and put himself through US medical school. And I thought, gosh, if I can, if the one thing I can communicate to my son is that uh, whether it's genetic or not, he has two contributors to who he is that both have a lot of grit for life. Yeah, grit and hustle and and altruism. Those are things that you can't really teach to somebody. I, I mean, you can you can present them, I think, with opportunities where they can embody that, but it's really up to them and maybe a little bit up to genetics, I think. Yeah, one hopes. Yeah. <laughs> I think with these, I think with donor conceived children, it's important they have a story. And it's important that their their story from the other side is not a blank slate. I think it's really helpful that they have these these audio interviews. I think it's really helpful that they ask donors to do handwritten essays because it humanizes the the genetic material. Absolutely, and yet they even have children books to that I've seen where it's like you know how to start telling your child from a young age of that they had donor egg or sperm of how bad mommy and daddy wanted you, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. One time Dante and I were blowing bubbles. He was only like two years old and there were two bubbles that were stuck together. And he says, mama, that looks like an embryo. Oh. (laughs) So he, yeah, from, from the very, very, very beginning that he could understand his story. He heard me talk about it. He heard me tell it. It's, it's been very normalized from, you know, his earliest memories. I think that's good. I think that's in terms of his self-esteem and what he thinks around that process. And you, you were talking about your process, which I, I have to commend you for because you had such a short time to do it, a very you know, systematic way to go about it and how you had chosen these ethnicities. And then you know, before we started recording, we were talking about 23andMe and you said that you actually got some different genetic results than what your donor had listed. <laughs> well, it turns out he's even more Mediterranean than he knew. I, yeah, it was hysterical. I, I wanted to do my son's 23andMe and I, I had already done mine and learned that I was very, very less Italian than anyone in my family thought, which my, to this day, my father feels like is a lie. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I grew up thinking I was so Italian, my last name, Crisci, very Italian. And I'm only like 9.9% Italian. So I expected my son to be, you know, no more than four and a half or, you know, some, some small percentage, 5%, 6%, since it's not, you know, an, an even uh, trickle down uh, effect of uh, ethnicities genetically. But he comes back 14.5% Italian. And the donor did not list Italian anywhere. <laughs> the donor is more Italian than he is Native American slash Mexican, so native, uh, I, I learned that from this 23andMe experience is that the Mexican is not, there, there is no genetic Mexican ethnicity. It's really, uh, in fact, it's incredible if you look at the, the mix of nationalities down in Mexico, that it's really Native American they, that settled in Mexico and they can trace that it is Mexican, but it's Native American. So th- I thought that was really fascinating too. It must, it's part of why he tans so easily, but he is, pre- my son is predominantly Spanish. That's awesome. All from, yeah. all from 23 and me. <laughs> all from 23 and me. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I told you a little bit, we, in my house, we did 23 and me this week and we got results back and um, it was really around 
my desire to find out if I was uh, a BRCA carrier because my mom had uh, breast cancer and ovarian issues. And I had a, a grandparent with Alzheimer's. So I, you know, I worked up the courage to see if I had that gene and my husband was adopted and his adopted mother had just passed from Alzheimer's as well. So, you know, I was like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, if you want to do it. And he sat on the test for four months and I came home one day and he was like, let's do this. We have to do this now. And it was like somebody had lit a fire and we both thankfully don't carry those genes, which is awesome to know. Huge sigh of relief. Still have to take care of ourselves, right? But sure. um, then he found three half siblings and his bio mom within a matter of days of receiving that test. So wow, the, the joke in our house, <laughs> he just keeps walking by kind of stunned looking at me going, <laughs> spit in the tube, she said. What could go wrong, she said. <laughs> <laughs> so those tests are quite extraordinary. I, you know, I, I think now with donors, I wonder how much of a role they'll play. I think that the, the, the donors are going to have to consent to genetic testing. And I think we're moving to an era where everyone has to be an open donor. An open donor doesn't mean that you're open for, you know, the entire life of the child, but it does mean that at 18, the child, you know, can make contact. You know, when I first selected my donor, I chose fully anonymous because I thought I was very threatened by, by the idea that someone who I didn't want to have in my life, I wasn't picking him the human, I was picking just the DNA. And interestingly enough, of course, the more my son became, went from baby to human, you know, to this little boy, and I started to see this other person kind of through him, I, I started to want to connect with the other families that use the same donor. And I, I wanted to be able to provide all those answers for my son. We have a private Facebook group for other donor families, you know, that use the same one. I like to call them diblings. Some of the other moms in the group, uh, you know, do call them half siblings, which genetically they are. Uh, I call them diblings, uh, (laughs) just to make a distinction that there's a difference because I don't get to raise those kids as his half siblings, but we all are connected. You know, we share anecdotes about our kids and pictures and everyone stays you know, fairly up to speed on life. We're getting together, in fact, in a couple weeks uh, in LA with four families together. And I love it. it. It has added so much to our life and to his life by having this extended family. And it's one of the, it's just one of those things that I think that the donor market is going to, is moving in this direction. You know, they can't not do it just because of all the genetic testing that's available. Well, and, and also when they, these children get older, you know, that was the other reason that we kind of jokingly took this test because he was adopted and didn't know anything about his history. And I said, we share brain space. What if we're siblings somehow? <laughs> you know? Right. Or, or fifth cousins. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> something. That becomes a real challenge for children of donors later in life when it comes to dating and creating a family, right? Well, I think it's an overstated challenge. I mean, in our case, we only have... I think 10 or 11 total families, the, the family limits are put in place of 25, both from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and, and mostly, you know, from the individual sperm banks adhere to that themselves anyway, to prevent that kind of thing. So it's rare these days that you hear those anon- anonymalies, the anomalies of, you know, someone who has 100 offspring, you know, that's just so rare. I do uh, have one patient that has that. Yeah, it's so rare, you know, I mean, it doesn't happen all that often. But I do feel lucky that, you know, we only have um, a handful. 
mostly just so I'm not overwhelmed with all the extra relationships to keep up with, you know, uh, that's really, you know, why I feel relieved, not because I'm, I was worried about him, you know, um, you know, accidentally dating a, a half sibling or something. Right. They all look so much alike. I will say there is such a genetic link between all these children. It's really incredible. The other thing that's interesting in our case is our donor was retired early because of a genetic predisposition to hearing loss. And it turns out that my son is a carrier of that gene. He has one variant. So if he marries someone that has another variant, has a variant as well, then they could uh, have offspring who uh, would have hearing loss and need a cochlear implant to hear. This becomes so important for my son's preconception planning. So I do feel grateful that I have that information now. I knew that information about the donor. I knew that by the time the cryobank found out about it, I already had made my embryos. They had been frozen for five years. So that I wasn't going to make a different choice, you know, and create, uh, you know, new embryos with a different donor. So there was a risk uh, when my son was born that he would um, he would have had that because if it turned out that I was also a carrier, then he could have had the hearing loss. I turned out not to be a carrier. So uh, my son is named Dante. It means enduring and he's fine, um, but he is a carrier, you know? So these are the things that become important in preconception planning. Yes, absolutely. I love that name you picked for him, especially given your journey. That's, I can't think of anything more perfect than that for a boy. I, I felt that way. I, I woke up, I think at 28 or 29 weeks pregnant with the name on my mind for some reason. And I looked up what it meant. And I said, Oh, of course, it's like he was speaking to me from the womb, like, Hey, Mama, it's Dante. <laughs> yep. And that happens to a lot of a lot of parents, I think, and some even before the baby is here. It's quite interesting. But so in addition to having to make these decisions, you know, thank goodness, your cancer treatment went well. But in the face of this, I think I read that you was it within three weeks you had developed a nonprofit, which has now turned into Fertile Action? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, that day that I was sitting in the fertility clinic office, I, I put the, the entire fee of $20,000 on a credit card. That's a lot of points. <laughs> it was a lot of points. It, it, I, I definitely got a flight out of those points on my American Express card for sure. I call them fertility miles. I hope you got like a restoration hardware couch out of that Yeah, too. exactly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't use it for that though because my son would have destroyed the restoration <laughs> hardware couch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a lot of money. And I walked out of the office just feeling called to do something about that amount of money. So I, I decided to take on insurance coverage as my mission in California. And in the meantime, you know, of not figuring out how to solve it, I thought, well, let's at least get that fee reduced. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. Was it going to be grants? Was I going to raise a bunch of money and, and put more profit in the you know, IVF doctor's pocket? That didn't feel right. They all really cared about all these cancer patients too. So some of them started to do pro bono cases for me, fertility preservation cases. And then kind of along the way, we figured out that sort of everyone could do a, an egg freezing case for about $3,000. So we, we ended up creating this network of you know, discounted fertility preservation fees for cancer patients. It became a, a cumbersome program to run. It, it was a lot of work to run and required a lot of resources just to run the program. So I knew I still had to solve the, the problem long term. Mm -hmm. We did uh, co-sponsor a bill in 2011 with ASRM 
the bill failed to, to proceed through uh, both houses. We did the bill again in 2013. It, it flew, that was the year I was pregnant. It flew through both houses, no problem. And very, very disappointingly, the governor vetoed it. Ugh. Part of the reason for the veto was, was an excuse around ACA, the cost of implementing ACA. And, you know, everything was about ACA back then. Right. Well, flash forward to 2018, and last year we were considering um, putting up another bill to clarify the law because our position has been, this is a medically necessary expense. Covering chemotherapy, which is also a medically necessary expense, does not require a bill. So then why does fertility preservation require a bill? After many, many conversations and many patients who access the appeals system in California to get their fertility preservation covered, the Department of Managed Healthcare agreed with us in January, agreed with a group of advocates who've been working on this for all these years. Um, we were just one of them. The Alliance for Fertility Preservation was also involved, as was ASRM. And they, DMHC finally agreed, yes. Fertility preservation is a medically necessary covered expense, and it's actually covered under the Knox-Keene Act. The Knox-Keene Act is something that was enacted, I believe, in 1975. Wow. So it's, it, it, it's something that was enacted the year before I was even born. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's incredible to, that you brought all this awareness around something that had just been kind of shoved under the rug. Well, I didn't do it alone. You know, uh, we had a, a couple of great legislators who were also willing to take this up as their cause. Anthony Portentino, who's now a senator um, back then in 2011, was an assembly member. He became very passionate about this cause. And when he turned out as an assembly member and before he ran for Senate, he did uh, a local Pasadena television show and brought awareness to this cause. He continued to support fertile action and then uh, Assemblymember Quirk Silva is the one that picked it up in 2013, you know, and she brought a lot of media attention to it as well and, and you know, did a wonderful job with, um, you know, with her press team raising awareness. Meanwhile, through Fertile Action and also through, you know, our partnered organizations like ASRM and uh, the Alliance for Fertility Preservation, we had uh, produced a course sponsored by California Cryobank that was an online clinical education course just to educate the oncology community because even if we solved the insurance coverage issue, we still had an issue where oncologists were not informing patients about fertility preservation. And that's a massive problem. One of the things I was concerned about with us even having the acknowledgement that, that any plan in California that falls under DMHC you know, would be required to cover fertility preservation if it's deemed medically necessary, you know, that that might be a case by case basis with insurers. We were concerned oncologists won't even know and won't even tell their patient. So that's the thing that we're working on next. I have done so many grand rounds up and down the state of California, so many clinic visits, so, you know, many group presentations to oncology nurses and oncology oncologists. And, you know, for 10 years now, I, I did that. I've turned my attention now to my app uh, that connects those struggling to conceive with seven different types of infertility experts or four fertility experts, really. I've turned my attention um, into, uh, into promoting that app um, because what I learned along the way is that digital tools are really critical, uh, in particular when people are facing a health crisis. 
Yeah, Dr. Google, it it you know, and all those forums, they they both answer and raise a lot of questions. So I think the app that you've created, Med Answers, is there's such a need for that to be able to connect with experts right away. So I certainly commend you for that. And and maintain anonymity, right? I think in the face of the the public Facebook groups and and all the misinformation that really well-intentioned patients who have a success story or have a tragedy and they want to help somebody else, they come from the exact right place of trying to help, but they end up spreading so much misinformation and being far more confusing than helpful. And I think in the face of even Facebook's, you know, data privacy issues, that the last place people should be putting all of their health data and health conversations is in public, a public site like Facebook. Exactly. You know, we have a a platform that's private and secure and we keep the patient anonymous. We don't allow the expert to be anonymous, of course, but we, we protect anonymity of the patient. Uh, Eventually the patient can choose a provider, you know, from the interaction that they have, but this is really important to us because we want users to ask really personal questions. They do need to give us a little bit of health data so that the experts can answer very relevantly. And then once that exchange has been done, we know that we can get the the user on the right path to success. Yeah, I've spent some time in that portal. And one of the things that when I, I landed on your homepage, and I took a look at who the experts were. And I saw Dr. Paul Turek, the reproductive urologist, and I like squealed with delight. I absolutely love him. (laughs) I love Paul. (laughs) I wish I could send every male fertility challenge I have his way, but he's all the way in LA, even though he does do some consults (laughs) via Skype. Yeah, he does. He has a San Francisco clinic now, and he's opening a Silicon Valley Ah, clinic as well. Wow. So at least he's got California covered. Yeah, no, but he's just, he's so amazing. And in terms of his wealth of knowledge, but he has what I call the comfort factor, like immediately talking about strange things like, you know, sperm. (laughs) Exactly. It's just an everyday conversation. And he's, he's so calm, cool and collected and funny. I'll have to send you his interview that he did for us when we put together our Onco Fertility course. He, he has such a great way of framing for the young man what's expected if he's going to go freeze his sperm. Yes. And it's just great. He's a straight shooter. It's, it's incredible. And I think the best thing that you can do for a young man is make him laugh before he has to go do something really uncomfortable. Yeah, make his heart open, for goodness sake. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would love it if you would send me that. I can link to it in the show notes in episode 28. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So in Med Answers, you have, I noticed you have a, a section for infertility, you have a section for oncology, and then another section for genomics, uh, which it looks like those last two are being kind of constructed right now, right? That's correct. Yeah, we're, we're, we're solely focused on fertility right now. You know, I go back and forth, is it infertility or is it fertility? And I think the reality is it, it's, it's fertility. It's people... You know, we do specialize in those who are struggling to conceive because that's when you're up at two and three o'clock in the morning asking a million questions. And we see in the US, there's this huge gap between how many people are struggling to conceive, you know, over 7 million, and how many end up at an IVF clinic. There's only about 220,000 ART cycles that happen per year. And not all of those are with people who are even infertile, you know, right? Single women could be fertile, just, you know, 
having to use ART to have a baby. Same-sex couples are not necessarily infertile at all. They're just, you know, they have the absence of either the sperm or the egg. So it, it's it's a, the classical definition of infertility, but they um, they certainly just lack a gamete. They are not uh, infertile because of PCOS or endometriosis or recurrent miscarriage loss or iatrogenic infertility like with, with cancer treatment. So, you know, we, we do uh, want to provide that safe place for all of those um, situations. And we hope that the intention is of those 7 million people, I believe many, many of them can still be successful at home without an ART cycle, without an expensive ART cycle. And the faster we can intervene, the faster we can put them on the right path to success, then the more affordable they can have their families. And should they end up in an IVF clinic's office, we hope that um, again, by, by quickly intervening and providing them with solutions and answers that they will need maybe two cycles instead of three, which is the national average. Yeah, because the, the time can be so extensive of, of how long that actually takes to go from starting the IVF's process to actually having a take-home baby. And that can be years in some cases. That, that's the thing that breaks me very sad is the time delay. So, you know, the, even the definition of infertility, you know, 12 months of not being successful if you're under the age of 35. Okay, well, if you're 34 and now you're 35, you now are facing 35 years old facing a pretty big dip in your fertility. Right. You know, and, and you know, it's six months of trying if you're over the age of 35. Gosh, I, I just feel like if you're over the age of 35, just go in and get a consult with an infertility specialist right away. To, you know, to see where things stand. I am such a big proponent of women and men knowing where things stand. And for men these days, there's so many at-home sperm testing kits to at least get a preliminary view into how things are going. Men don't even have to do anything uncomfortable in a clinical environment. That's right. They just need, need their cell phone and, and a good kit. You know, women, it's a lot more invasive, even for basic testing, but women can do an at-home kit, you know, uh, these days as well. You know, you have folks like Dr. Amy Ivazeta, who has a fertility awareness option where, you know, she sends you off for testing. She gets the results and has a, a video consult with you just to check and see where things are. And even if that's not going to end up being your doctor, I'm such a proponent of those at-home testing opportunities so that we empower people with the data about their own bodies. That way they don't wait too long. You know, I, I, it makes me just so heartbroken when I see someone say like, we've been trying to conceive for seven years and they've never even gotten on a video consult with, with a specialist. No, I agree. That's, I actually do that through my, um, my blog site as well, or if you're in the US, you can order day three testing anywhere and I'll explain the data to you and what, you know, basically where you fall and kind of give you an idea of like, yes, you, you absolutely should go see a specialist or, or no, your numbers look great. Let's talk about some other things that could be an issue, you know. Yes, exactly. A lot of the studies, interestingly enough, point to three months and a female being the marker of um, where things start to kind of slide mentally, emotionally, mm -hmm. where men are closer to 12, regardless of age. <laughs> and mm. I think that that's where some of that discrepancy comes in is because, you know, for eons, it's always been the woman's fault. And it's almost like we're programmed. If something's wrong, it must be our fault where the men are like, oh, it'll happen. It's fine. And meanwhile, you know, the woman has been saying, I told you so for nine months. And that creates a bigger disconnect and divide in the couple, which you absolutely don't want during a stressful time. Gosh, that's exactly it. It's so stressful. And I agree with that.
that. I agree with that. That so wholeheartedly the difference. And I, I, I love that you're doing what you're doing. I, I think that this is this has to start to become standard. I think also we have to eventually. I'll take this on eventually when Dante is probably in like third grade. But I think we have to start at at you know sex education when when our kids are in school. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, you know, we the version of sex education in this country is don't get pregnant. Right. Rather than reproductive health education. Yes. Okay, so your mission about helping other women and couples conceive when it's medically necessary is definitely sincere because you you actually put a webinar out about accessing the appeal system to get insurance to cover fertility preservation. Is that just for California or is that anywhere? The appeals process in California is a little bit unique. So I have a webinar designed just for Californians. We're unique in this state because we have a Department of Insurance and we have Department of Managed Healthcare. Department of Managed Healthcare is whom we've focused on predominantly because they cover the vast majority of California health plans. Uh, and I put together this webinar to empower other people to access an urgent appeals process. Now, the DMHC also has a, a phone number that's published on their website, and you can call and get somebody on the phone to help you navigate this process. It, they are supposed to take you through the entire scenario in fewer than two weeks. What has to happen is you have to appeal to your insurer first. You can't just go straight to the DMHC and say, you know, I'm a cancer patient. I need to access this coverage. You have to ask your insurance company first to cover you. That's usually done on a prior authorization request that either your oncologist or your fertility specialist uh, can do for you. In the case of sperm banking, very few, if any, sperm banks will submit for insurance for you. In those cases, you would pay for the services up front and get reimbursed by your insurance carrier. But like we said, the DMHC agrees that under the Knox-Keene Act of 1975, if it's medically necessary fertility preservation due to something like cancer treatment, then it must be covered. If the insurer denies, then the first appeal is an urgent appeal to the insurance carrier. If they still are confused, then you call DMHC or you fill out the very brief online form with DMHC uh, to have them intervene and they will uphold the approval for uh, coverage as long as you meet that medically necessary definition. That's the only part that's a little bit gray is there is no medically necessary definition. The professional societies have already deemed in the case of cancer patients and those facing things like chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, uh, surgical removal of gonads, those situations are already deemed medically necessary for fertility preservation. The insurance companies look to the professional societies for those types of definitions. That's already been accomplished. So there should be no question for these cancer patients. That's awesome. So where can people find this step-by-step process in this webinar that you've created? Yeah, that's on the fertileaction.org website. Okay. We, um, yeah, we have that published there. Just go to a pull down tab for California. We, uh, uh, we have other states that are adopting legislation to mandate fertility preservation. I'm hopeful that once we start getting the word out about California's choice, that we can work with other big states like Texas, New York, uh, some of you know, the other larger ones where we have a lot of cancer patients of this demographic and work directly with the regulators to not have to go through the very extensive and very costly legislative process to, to make this change. 
Awesome. And so on this, on um, fertileaction.org, can people also donate to your cause too, to help you with these legislature costs? Yeah, they can. Yeah, I can click that big old pink donate button <laughs> and, um, you know, and donate, uh, you know, 100% of our funds are used uh, for advocacy and producing things like the webinar and the other educational online course that we have up on udemy.com um, for both male and female oncofertility. And once we've solved this insurance issue nationwide, then uh, my company Med Answers um, will achieve profitability and start donating a percentage of the profits to then cover IVF grants for those who do need to still use IVF to do a frozen embryo transfer or um, an egg donor or a surrogacy cycle. So we will once again get back into the business of grant making, but for now we're 100% focused on advocacy. That's amazing. And you, you've also authored a book and all the proceeds go to Fertile Action as well, correct? That's true. Yeah. So my book is Too Young for This. It's a very short, um, raw account. I wrote it in three sort of feverish days before I underwent my double mastectomy. Um, And it is, it's about all those raw feelings, um, truly about processing what it is to be diagnosed at, at a young age and facing those life and death questions. Well, I think that kind of work is, um, it's so great that you are courageous enough to put yourself out there because it's, fertility challenges are so isolating and, and oncology treatments can be isolating as well. And so to be able to let somebody into your world that's experiencing something similar, or maybe even change their perspective of like, hey, picking donor sperm's not that bad. You know, I could be facing cancer at the same time. I, I think that that's really special that you opened yourself up for that. So yeah, and I hope, you know, in particular, the people who are considering becoming a single mama, you know, one of the things that I always say is it's a thousand times easier than I expected it to be. It truly is. And my relationship with my son is so magnificent and so rewarding that however it is that someone needs to make a family, just open your heart to the option. Because even if it's not with your egg and a sperm donor or your egg and your partner's egg or a donor egg and your partner's sperm or both donors, um, you know, and, and as expensive as surrogacy is, you know, if your uterus is not there, or if uterus doesn't work, you know, please consider that there are all kinds of ways to make a family. And the more that we talk about it in the media and the more we get to normalize this, then the more our children grow up knowing that, um, that it's okay to have two moms, it's okay to have two dads, it's okay to have one mom or one dad or a mom and a dad, that all of those versions are okay. What matters is raising children surrounded by the incredible, enduring, you know, everlasting kind of love that Dante and I have for each other. I couldn't agree more. You know, family is a choice. And the more choices you have available to you of people that loved you and wanted you, I think the, the better human being you turn out to be. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so there's all of these places to find you. I'm sure they can find your book on Amazon. Uh, We've got fertilityaction.org for anybody that is interested in either donating or benefiting from one of those fertility scholarships. And then the incredible platform that is just getting underway, medanswers.com, where you can ask very personal, specific questions, whether it's male, female, uh, issues around fertility, embryo screening, diagnostics, treatment planning, Uh, medication, surrogacy, you've got it all on there. And an expert that is qualified will answer you and no one is mining your data. Exactly. (laughs) 
If you're listening, please get on there. Yeah, you can download on iOS or on Android. There's a beta version on Android, but we do have iOS and Android versions. Yeah, and I love the surf uh, the search function on there because you know yeah. if you have a question, it may have already been answered. You know through something similar with someone else. So that's great. And you are, you're about to do a Facebook live to promote med answers. Yes. Wednesday. Yeah. We're doing a Facebook live. Well, we're doing a Facebook live sponsored by med answers to talk about data, genetics, and fertility. We invited Dr. Amy, uh, whom we love so much, um, the egg whisperer and also Jennifer Siegel from SEMA four that has a carrier check product available on helix.com. Okay. Awesome. Um, and your Facebook page is, uh, forward slash med answers. Okay. All right. We'll be sure to link to all of this in the notes in case you're jogging on a treadmill or driving down the car. You don't have to write any of this down, but it was such a pleasure to, to meet with you and understand all that you're doing. I wish that more people were advocates for other people like this. And I'm so excited for you that your dreams came true. And I, I, I can't wait to see what you do with those other embryos. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I can't wait till the next time we talk again. You're, yes. you're a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. Good luck. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.